Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. It is Tuesday, May 18th. I'm Bill Nygut. Lots to talk about on the show today, so let's get right to our panel. Because it is Tuesday, I'm joined by Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How you doing, Tamar? Hey, Bill. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us, as always. Uh, We're also joined by two uh, Metro Atlanta mayors, and I'm really glad that it turns out we invited them to be a part of this show because uh, the issues that we're going to talk about first surrounding the CDC's lifting of mask mandates for vaccinated people are going to have a big impact on their constituents at the local level. So um, we're joined by East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram. Thank you for being here, uh, Mayor uh, Ingram. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for being, and the invitation. It's always great to be with you. Absolutely. So, uh, Dina Holiday Ingram, on one end of Fulton County, uh, Mayor Rusty Paul, uh, Mayor of Sandy Springs, and by the way, former chairman of the Georgia State Republican Party, among uh, many uh, positions he's held uh, in uh, politics over the years. Uh, joins us as well. Hi, Rusty. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, We're also going to be represented by Savannah on the show today. Adam Van Brimmer, the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News, is here. Adam, do I recall correctly that Savannah, since we're going to talk CDC guidance in a minute, was the first city in the state to impose a mask mandate? Do I recall that correctly? If it wasn't the first, it certainly was was among the first for sure, as Mayor Johnson put that in pretty early and pretty aggressively. Yeah, and the biggest at the time, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and and also, just for context, uh, the the shutdown came just a couple of days before our St. Patrick's Day party, which had to be canceled. So it was one of those things that once you you cancel something that precious – you might as well go for broke. And he did. And it's it's paid off pretty well for our community. OK. And we will talk about all that. Uh, Tamar, let me start by just setting the stage for that conversation. As recently as uh, a week ago today, I think it was, um, Rochelle Walensky, the uh, head of CDC, testified in front of a congressional committee and said that uh, wearing masks, social distancing, continued to be the optimal way to deal with the virus. And so uh, by the end of the week, she surprised the country, uh, I think. She surprised certainly political leaders, uh, many public health officials, and others when she said the new CDC guidance was that vaccinated people were safe, they could go without masks, and without social distancing. And, and tomorrow, instead of being celebrated as a victory over the virus, this has caused, I mean, there are people who think it's a wonderful thing, but it's also caused enormous confusion and questions among, again, political leaders as well as businesses. Yes? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly a surprise announcement by the CDC on Thursday. And based on a lot of reporting I read, it seems like even federal officials in the White House and from other uh, government agencies were, you know, weren't expecting the news. And so you saw a press conference uh, with with President Biden and Kamala Harris where they, they took their masks off. And clearly it was a big moment. But I think for a lot of other Americans, it was kind of a sense of whiplash. Like, wait, we've been trying to be careful. The CDC, as recently as last Tuesday, was telling us to hunker down. And then all of a sudden, it, it felt very quickly like they kind of turned on a dime. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's obviously a huge moment. And I think it sent business owners and companies and local institutions, counties, cities, sports teams, kind of scrambling to figure out Okay, our guidance now is in, you know, is conflicting with the CDC guidance. What do we do and what can we do safely? Because I think now the CDC guidance distinguishes so much between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. It really raises the question, how do we know who's vaccinated and is there a way to enforce that without stepping on people's privacy rights while also protecting the most vulnerable people? And that's something that you see everyone is trying to wrestle with and I don't think there are any easy answers right now. So, Mayor Paul, uh, uh, you and uh, Mayor Ingram both uh, have to, you know, the county sort of overrides the authorities in terms of what guidance is in place and what isn't. Nevertheless, in your own communities, this has an enormous impact. Mayor Paul, talk a little bit about what it means to Sandy Springs. Well, we, uh, you know, what we've tried to do is there, there are two documents that have guided our policy decisions on it. One is the CDC guidelines and recommendations. The other is the governor's executive order, which kind of give us the guardrails that we operate in. And uh, our council, uh, we we were probably one of the first cities that began to reopen, uh, and council just decided that, look, we, we've got, if you been want to be vaccinated, you can have been vaccinated by now. We're not going to punish those who are responsible to protect those who are being somewhat irresponsible right now. At least that was their attitude. And so we, we had our first concert outside uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was very well attended. We had a second one uh, last Sunday, not quite as well attended. But uh, we're trying to uh, still encourage people to wear masks, uh, and uh, we were in the process of reopening just about everything, uh, and uh, but still trying to find you know follow those guidelines between the governor's executive order and what CDC is telling us. And if you're vaccinated, which we have no way of verifying, uh, you you can uh, you we're just letting you go, I guess, right now. That's all we can do. And and what are you seeing from the local businesses? Um, up and down the business streets in Sandy Springs, are they? Are you? Are you hearing from them? Are they asking for advice on what to do? Uh, getting a little bit of that, but most of them, uh, particularly your larger corporations, your grocery stores, your big box stores, that sort of thing, they're following their own corporate guidelines. Uh, there are still a lot of people wearing masks when you go to the grocery store, or some of these other institutions. Uh, which is probably the safest right now, uh, but uh, there's no way that anybody can really enforce that at this point. In Fulton County, the infection rates are below the, the levels that the governor has set for enforcing a mask mandate, so we have no legal authority to do it anymore. So it's just kind of up to the individual to try and be as responsible as you possibly can at this point. Mayor Ingram, talk to us about what's happening in East Point. So, so in East Point, um, the businesses also are, are still following their corporate guidelines. So uh, all of our restaurants and, and um, retail locations that I've entered, they're still, they're still a mask requirement. 
from a city's perspective, you know, when you know that 27%, um, only 27% of black people in black communities have been vaccinated. And when you have a city like East Point where our population is about 75% African-American and about 10% Hispanic, so people of color, majority, um, we, we have to make sure that we, um, you know, really pay attention to the needs of our community and not ignore the disparities, right, in the way that this, this virus had, has disproportionately impacted communities of color. So we're holding steady. Um, masks are still required in, in our city hall. Uh, we're still only doing appointments, um, meetings by appointment only. But we will um, bring back some events this month, and we will have masks requirements at those events because we cannot we're not going to get into this you know proving that you've been vaccinated right like the reality of it is is that people who are vaccinated it's you know the cdc is saying that it's safe they cannot wear masks and they cannot social distance but we're we, there's absolutely no way to try to enforce that or police that or like ensure that that's happening so masks will be required and um, we are thinking about potentially maybe starting um, in-person um, meetings um, and the actually the staff will start coming back full-time um, on June 1st, two of our departments, um, planning and community development, as well as our customer care. And then full, um, you know, everyone back by August 1st and kind of easing into it. And speaking with our city manager, me and him discussed it and, you know, really what we're looking at the guidelines or the requirements as it applies to like flights and travel and you know when when will those when will there be changes in that because we know that there's still masks required um on airplanes and and, and on buses or transportation and so really kind of looking at that as well so um let me follow up with one quick question if i may uh, you talked about the low vaccination rate among african americans and you're concerned about it in your community um, early on, uh, the conventional wisdom was that, uh, that many black people were unwilling to be vaccinated because of concerns about past um, atrocities in the world of medicine involving black people. But, but more to the point, I think, is that the hesitancy has decreased. Are you still finding people in your community who are having trouble getting access to be vaccinated? I think we really worked through the access. Fulton County has a health um, equity initiative where actually if people who are even homebound or have transportation struggles, they can actually reach out to the mayor's office and we can make a referral directly. And if they want to be vaccinated, they're homebound. Someone will go to their home. Um, there's also been a number of locations throughout our city to make sure that people have access in the city and alleviate the transportation barrier. So we have weekly um, vaccination at Impact Church, um, as well as East Point First Malibu United Methodist Church. We've had other vaccinations at other churches in our city, um, Chapel Hill, New Grant Chapel, and St. Stephen. So we we kind of tried to address the access issue locally and also looking at mobile sites. So I think the access is there. Um, what I, I was just speaking with um, one of the persons who runs the, the site at Impact Church, and really the turnout is lower. Right. And we've been we were talking about how do we market? How do we try to get more people? And I think it's a vaccine hesitancy. Right. Um, while there are, I think, a number, a substantial percentage of people in the community and people of color who are vaccinated, it's still less than 30, about 30 um, percent. <clears throat> and, you know, the Johnson and Johnson situation, I don't think helped 
Um, and even though the numbers were minuscule when you talk about the, you know, six million and six people, it's still six people. And if you're one of those people, then that's a challenge. And Savannah was absolutely the first city in the state to do a mask mandate. And we followed yeah. the lead as number two. <laughs> uh, Adam, give us a quick uh, uh, summary of what's happening in Savannah as a result of the CDC. How was it? How was this lifting of the mask mandates greeted by city officials, by businesses down your way? Uh, it, it's been welcomed. The city, the city continues to have a mask mandate. The county has lifted, has lifted theirs, but the city's is still in place. But to be honest with you, Bill, I, I've spent a lot of time um, downtown over going back to the start of the year. And tourism has returned, if not enforced, then very aggressively here. So we've all we've had a lot of people masked, unmasked, all of that throughout the year. So it's been kind of a, an awkward thing here. I think the CDC, um, the CDC guidance is welcome. But I also think that, and maybe this is me just being a little bit suspicious, is uh, I think maybe this is a carrot to get people to, to maybe be more uh, eager to get a vaccination with the whole idea that that we're lifting restrictions. I mean, that might backfire. I'm sure somebody else on this panel could, could argue the other side, but it'll be interesting to see, at least here in Chatham County, where the vaccination rate is, is relatively low, if we see a climb in it. I was at the clinic yesterday with my daughter, and it was empty. Um, so we'll see what happens. It's worth talking about some of the overlapping kind of authorities that a lot of these companies and governments and everyone has to, to kind of think about as they're making decisions when it comes to mask mandates. You have the CDC, which provides guidelines to all Americans. You have the state. You have counties and, and cities and localities. But you also have OSHA. Um, and by all accounts, it looks like OSHA was a bit caught off guard by what the CDC did. Um, and OSHA is the one that governs businesses. And so I think if you're a business... A lot of folks are waiting to see what OSHA is going to do. And right now, the guidance between OSHA and the CDC is conflicted. And so as a business, especially if you're a smaller one with tighter margins, do you really want to do something, completely repeal your mask mandate, for example, and risk running aground of what OSHA does? You know, a citation can carry fines of tens of thousands of dollars, even $100,000. And that's also something for, for folks to be considering. Um, based on some of the reporting I've been doing the, the last day or so, it looks like a lot of companies are hanging back and kind of waiting to see what other folks are doing. Um, you have kind of the, the giant companies, the Fortune 500s that operate in lots of different states, which as we've talked about, um, you know, they, they kind of have uniform things that they're doing across the entire company. But a lot of these places also have to operate under the, the rules of the ground in California or Michigan or, or wherever. Um, and so I think a lot of folks are also waiting to see, is there kind of a consensus that the business community kind of starts, um, you know, that, that emerges in the coming days? We, we might start seeing trends and that might dictate where, where businesses go. So I think we're kind of in the wait and see phase and we might have more answers in the days and weeks to come. So we know that Walmart was very quick to lift its mask mandate. Starbucks lifted their mask mandate mandate relatively uh, quickly. Uh, Home Depot uh, has decided that they are going to continue requiring masks for the time being. And Mayor Paul, they're up, uh, their headquarters are up uh, toward, toward your uh, uh, community. Uh, but, but you're not only a government agency, Rusty Paul, you're a business operator yourself. You have employees <laughs> in the city of Sandy Springs, and you too, with your people, have to think about what you're going to do as people 
come back to their offices in Sandy Springs. And that's the real challenge for those of us uh, because we're in this twilight zone and uh, trying to figure out exactly what we should do. We considered uh, mandatory uh, vaccinations. You saw that Delta is requiring vaccinations for all new hires. We looked at that and felt that there were HIPAA and uh, also morale issues and uh, privacy issues that we couldn't cross. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it, it's a real challenge, and there's not going to be a, a clear path forward for a while. Uh, we're going to be in, in this twilight zone for a while while we figure out what all the ramifications and, uh, and opportunities and options and, and, and downfalls may be. And we're just going to have to be cautious as we go through this period to uh, try and protect as many people as we can while getting back to normal as quickly as we can. Um, Adam, I been out shopping at supermarkets in in uh, my area of DeKalb County. Um, I see signs up saying wear a mask when you come inside. I haven't seen any changes at Kroger, at Publix, at Whole Foods, the supermarkets that I tend to shop at. Uh, Best Buy uh, still says uh, wear a mask. So so there's going to be a slow slow, uh, adoption of this new uh, uh, guidance from CDC, it appears. And, and that partly lends itself to the confusion that people are experiencing over this. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Bill. And my wife works in a Kroger, so uh, she, sees it, she sees it all the time. And, of course, Kroger still has, Kroger still has a mask mandate, as does Publix. Like you, those are the two on the, the island that I live. Those are the two supermarkets that are on the island that, that we frequent. And it is, it is confusing. I'm fully vaccinated, but I still wear a mask when I go to the grocery store. I still wear a mask at church. It's, I don't know. You know, you sit here and you try to reason of, of why you do that or should you do that. And I was always a big mask wearer, more out of consideration for others than I was for, for fear of the virus myself. But I think that it depends on the individual. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, if it's a phase out, if people are going to be wearing masks pretty much going forward or how it is all addressed over the, the, the time ahead. Mayor Ingram, I'd like to spend a couple minutes at least uh, with everybody, too, starting with you, talking a little bit about what we've already referred to, which is how this decision was made and then announced. Now, it, uh, uh, Director Walensky at CDC says, and Anthony Fauci has confirmed it, that the decision was made on the basis of science that data show uh, that you are unlikely to catch the virus if you're um, uh, fully vaccinated, and perhaps just as important, the newest set of data show that you're unlikely to be a spreader of the virus if you are vaccinated. Um, Nevertheless, over the last year plus in the final phase of the Trump administration, well, really since the time that they were dealing with the virus themselves, CDC lost so much credibility as an agency uh, that could be, was trustworthy and reliable. And the question, Mayor Ingram, is the way in which this decision seems to be, have been made didn't seem to follow any kind of sort of communication strategy that gave confidence to the decision. And, and the question is whether CDC continues to be struggling to win back the confidence of the American people. Yeah, I, I absolutely was a bit shocked 
when the news came out on Thursday, um, given where we were, I thought I felt like we were moving in a good direction as it relates to vaccination and getting on the same message about it being important, right? Masks being necessary to save lives and vaccinations are available and encouraging people to vax up. And then that came out and I was like, wow, okay. So today um, no one has to wear a mask if you're fully vaccinated. So, so I, I agree that the communication plan could have been a lot better. Um, it left a lot to be desired. And I think from a, you know, credibility or, you know, just comfort level, it didn't make people feel like it was comfortable, right? I've heard a number of people say, we're still wearing our masks. I still wear my mask, right? Um, because I don't know who is or is not vaccinated. And I think that's a huge challenge. And yes, we have these guidelines, but the key is knowing if someone's been vaccinated and literally people can tell you what you want to hear. So it, it I think it has it left a lot to be desired. I was shocked given the, the path that I felt like this administration was going or the CDC has been going lately. I felt like they were building credibility, but I think that um, shock announcement kind of maybe took a couple steps back. The, uh, the uh, you know, while I agree that CDC's reputation, which was platinum plated uh, before this the pandemic, has been tarnished a bit, it's it's the best we've got, and we have to rely on them and believe that they're what they're telling us right now that this is all based on science. It's been backed up by Fauci. Um, haven't heard much from the State Department of Public Health about it yet. Uh, and that's another source. We'll have a GMA. We'll have a call later today uh, to kind of give those of those of us at the local level the latest update from the state. So hopefully we'll get a little bit more information going forward. And uh, but right now the fact that you can criticize the uh, the rollout of it, but the fact it's it's now rolled out and people are relying on it, and that's what their expectations are. So those of us in local government and all policymakers have to work within what the expectations are and try and uh, operate as best we can under the expectations of the people who live in our communities. Mayor Paul, you mentioned it briefly uh, a few minutes ago the, uh, that you've started having concerts again up there. And uh, you, you, City Springs is an enormous performing arts venue uh, that the city uh, 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 worked to build, did, did build, and has gotten a lot of attention because it's become a, a, pre, a premier venue for artists. Um, and, and you really, when did you first announce in Sandy Springs? It was, it was already like back in March or something yeah. when there were still concerns about the spread of the virus that you were going to find a way to open that venue to begin having events uh, again. And, and that must have been a very tricky decision. It was. It was. Uh, and we were looking at the trend lines and following the guide. The, the, the original plan for reopening included masks and six-foot spacing uh, in, in all the venues. And then as we got closer to the very first concert, CDC uh, started saying, you know, we don't have to do quite as much as we uh, thought you were going to have to do. So we adapted and reduced the uh, social distancing and didn't have the mask mandate uh, on the site, uh, and but we still were able to operate. It was interesting. I walked through the crowd, uh, and most people were social distancing. They weren't necessarily wearing masks, but they were keeping their distance, which was very helpful. And then outside, that uh, the science proves that that it's less transmissible in that environment. And uh, we have that's been over two weeks ago, and we've seen no. Sp- 
spike in uh, our uh, infection rates in Sandy Springs. In fact, they continue to go down. So we think we were able to operate safely, and we're continuing that process, and uh, we will not open any of the indoor venues until the end of August. Uh, and uh, so we're trying to be gradually open, open responsibly, uh, and, uh, and follow the guidelines as best we can. Um, all right. I mean, we're going to be following this story, obviously, in the weeks ahead. Um, we got to get to our first break of the show. I appreciate the conversation from all of you about how this uh, CDC guidance has affected your own communities. When we come back, we're going to turn to some news in the political world about Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor of Georgia. All that and more after this. East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, Rusty, Rusty Ball, Mayor of Sandy Springs, Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor of Savannah Morning News, and Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, all with us today. Uh, I want to give the journalist, Tamar, you first, and then Adam the first crack at this one. Uh, Tamar, we've known for quite some time now that Jeff Duncan was unlikely to seek re-election as lieutenant governor. He, of course has been one of those people who's been outspoken as a Republican in criticizing President Trump's conspiracy theories. And we knew that uh, his efforts to get reelected would be tough in in a GOP primary, certainly. And now it's official. Uh, His uh, team put out a statement from him yesterday saying he won't run for reelection. He will instead devote himself to being one of those working for a, what they call a GOP 2.0, a Trump-free Republican Party. Just one other piece of information, and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, he uh, said something on, on uh, MSNBC in a live interview this morning. Uh, he said, when you've gotten as many death threats as I have uh, since I began speaking out about Donald Trump, you realize there's something wrong that has to be corrected tomorrow. Well, um, his decision was not a surprise at all. Um, You know, my colleague Greg has been reporting since at least April, if not longer, that, um, you know, quoting his top aide and other people that that Jeff Duncan was not likely to to run. And and we we knew about this initiative, GOP 2.0. We didn't have a ton of details until now. Um, Look, he's not in a in a very popular position right now in his party. Um, it does not pay in Georgia right now as a Republican to go against former President Donald Trump. And um, so right now, Jeff Duncan's a little bit of an outcast in the Georgia GOP, and I think he knows that. Um, you know, you even listen to his quotes uh, in this interview he gave Greg yesterday where he talks about, um, you know, I know I'll be right in the long term, but, but his hope is that by 2024, uh, is when he's hoping people will come around to him. I think there's a realization that right now where the party is, um, they're, they're not going to be as receptive to his message. The, the question is whether by 2024 people will. And I think there are a lot of folks who are saying that won't be the case. Adam, uh, let me play a little sound from uh, the uh, interview this morning on MSNBC. Uh, Sam, why don't you play the bite that you choose uh, to uh, put on the air? Well, there's no way to ignore the fact that there is a vacuum of leadership inside the GOP right now, and we're either going to ignore it or we're going to try to fix it. And I've decided to be a part of the team that's going to fix it. And uh, we're launching GOP 2.0, which isn't a new party. It's just a better pathway forward and hopefully going to be a safe place for conservative Republicans 
to call home. And, uh, you know, look, Republicans all over the country should be outraged that the news cycle about Republican efforts have been around removing Liz Cheney, from, who's one of the most conservative members of the U.S. House, uh, and Andrew Clyde making outrageous comments on, on the uh, in his role in the House, instead of talking about increasing interest uh, rate or inflation rates and global conflicts and cyber hacks on pipelines, these are real issues that Republicans should be talking about. Adam Van Brimmer, uh, we can unpack some of what uh, uh, Jeff Duncan said in the next little while. But the first thing I think is, who would, at, where do people like Duncan think they're going to turn to be able to establish themselves as kind of a beachhead in in reforming the Trump-oriented Republican Party. It seems like a, a task that will take at least the next two years, if not four years. Right. I, I think we're seeing in a Republican Party that you have the split between the pragmatists and the Trumpists. And I think the pragmatists see that if we go the route of Trump, then we're going to lose a lot of principles and other things. We could have a, we could spend a couple hours on on Trumpism and, and his ideology or, or lack thereof. But I think folks like Duncan see that if you if you let it go that far, then you're basically going to lose the party. And I also think people like Duncan realize that you're not going to win a whole lot of statewide elections uh, following the Trumpist narrative. I think we saw that here uh, in the last election cycle. But here's the thing: is this is up and down. This is up and down the ranks of the party. I mean, we saw it here in in the first district and in Chatham County recently. The first district had to cancel had to cancel their convention over the weekend simply because there is a faction of people out of the Chatham out of the Chatham Republican Party who don't want to who don't play well with others and like to flaunt the fact that they don't play well with others and were disruptive and uh, basically led led to the Chatham party being completely canceled in the middle, adjourned, and leading to the district convention being canceled before it even got started. So I, I think whether it's at the grassroots grassroots level all the way to the national level now, you've got this you've got this very broad split and you've got the factions of people that used to be able to be marginalized by quite frankly people of common sense. Now they feel emboldened and they aren't being uh, if they're being they're not allowing themselves to be marginalized. And I think that that is a real challenge for the Republican Party. I think Jeff Duncan sees it. He, if he's going to stay in the Republican Party, he doesn't want to be in the Trump Republican Party. And I think that uh, I think it's a profile and courage and courage for him. So we'll see where it goes. Rusty Paul, you have been a longtime leader in, in Republican politics in the state of Georgia, including, as I said, as chair of the state Republican Party. But but to be involved in that way, uh, you you carry around a lot of battle scars, a lot of war <laughs> wounds. I mean, Adam talks about what happened in the first district uh, 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 meeting this week. I can go back to talking about the state Republican convention in Albany, Albany way back yeah. in the 90s. 1988. Was it 88? Okay, when the entire convention was thrown yeah. into complete disarray because of a rump movement by uh, uh, Republicans who didn't want to toe the party line. How do you fi- maneuver your way through this, Rusty Paul? Well, fortunately, I've got a little bit of perspective. I mean, I came into the Republican Party during Watergate and then there was the the Pat Robertson wave that came in in, in 88 which you're referring to and and the party occasionally for about every 10 to 
12 years, we go through these uh, spasms where we, we kind of look like we're falling apart, yet somehow or the other we've always pulled it back together in the begin in the end. When I was party chairman, people said, well, what does a party chairman do? I said, I changed the subject. And they look at me quizzically and said, <laughs> what do you mean? I said, well, Republicans agree on about 90% of everything, and there's that 10% that we disagree on. And when we get into that 10% uh, where we disagree on, my job is to change the subject back to the, uh, the, the part where 90% agree and have those conversations. In today's environment, that's not possible. It's just going to take a little bit of time for this to work its way through. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think in the end, you know, the one thing that I've noticed is that Trump has brought in, and, and, and Adam referred to this, a huge wave of new people into the process. I made the bad mistake of presiding over the Fulton County Republican Party convention this year, and uh, when they asked how many people were at their very first convention, uh, well over half the room raised their hand. So in the long run, uh, you've brought a n new wave of activists and passion to the party. It's just going to take a while to turn the, the broken eggs into an omelet, and uh, you just have to wait it out and let things run their course. But I agree uh, that I think uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan looked at the tea leaves and figured out that he wasn't getting reelected in 2022, and he might as well figure out some path forward. And I think we've got the, the Secretary of State's got the same kind of challenges. Uh, the governor's done a pretty good job, not a, not a complete job, but he's doing a much better job of reconciling with uh, with the Trumpists and, and, and all wings of the party. So he's in a little bit better shape, but uh, it's still going to take a little bit of time to work through this. You know, Mayor Ingram, um, in a news conference, I think a couple weeks ago now, uh, President Biden had an opportunity, if he'd wanted to, to kind of pile on the Republican uh, uh, dissension about Donald Trump. When he was asked to comment on, on how the Trump dominance of the party was affecting Republicans in general, and he didn't do that. Instead, he said, it's bad for our country if we don't have a strong Republican party, if we don't have a party focused essentially on issues and policies. And, and what he was suggesting was, we need these countervailing forces to have a true democracy at work here. So give us your take on all this. You know, I, it is really, I, I spend no time really thinking about Trumpsters or Trumpism and all of that inhumane um, practice that I think is rooted in white supremacy, white nationalism, and really this, you know, very um, extreme ideology. And, and, you know, I find it interesting that the person is no longer in office, but we're still talking about it. So I can imagine for the Republican Party um, how much dissension that, that has caused. I, I, I do believe that there, the, there are people who actually decided that humanity was more important. So the Republicans who voted for Biden, I don't, don't think that they necessarily did it because they're trying to change parties. They just realized it wasn't a party issue. It was a people issue. It was a humanity issue. And at some point, enough is enough. And, you know, Liz Cheney, I think, did absolutely the right thing. And there are more people in the Republican Party who are going to have to do that. I don't think and the sitting president should spend time talking about or entertaining anything about a former person who occupied the White House who was extremely inhumane. Um, I think we have to pivot and, and really start thinking about, you know, what this country looks like moving forward. And there are Republicans who are humane 
and who care about people. They just have different policy beliefs. And that doesn't mean that that's, you know, inherently evil. It's just different. Um, and then their democratic policy. But what is critically important is focusing on the people. So if there's concern about Republicans who are in office not being reelected, it, to me, it has nothing to do with Trumpsters. It has to do with the fact that the people have realized their power and they're voting for humanity. And people who stand with inhumane practices or people who are against humanity will not be supported. And so I think it's more about that. Jamar? Oh, I looked like Adam wanted to jump in. So if you want to, I'll, t- I'll speak after you. All right, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, I, I was just going to follow up on what the mayor said is the, the, the Republicans that, that you're speaking of are, are losing the battle. So, so what is the way forward in the Republican Party? Is it, it we saw last week we saw this letter come out from 150 prominent conservatives calling for, hey, get your stuff together, or we're going to form a third party. And of course, if you got a third party, then you further diluted your vote, and you're not playing for 2022 or 2024 or probably even 2028. You're looking even further down the road. So, I, I do believe in what Rusty was saying is, is we definitely need to have. Uh, people with conservative views exerting influence in the government. And the problem is, is if, if the Trump, if Trumpism completely, it probably already has, completely hijacks the Republican Party, the Republican Party becomes irrelevant. And then you, you don't have those countervailing forces. And that's what really, as, as someone who's very moderate in his political views, that scares the living tar out of me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It scares me to death. Well, Adam, I guess because I've got the perspective, I mean, we went we, the same things were said in the '88 period when Christian Coalition came in the Republican Party. We had the same conversations, the same debates. That the, the party is going to fragment uh, and fall apart. Uh, and uh, you know, this this country, the, the Democrats go through this from time to time. When they did it with with George McGovern, and there are other you know there are examples where parties go through these turmoils and look like they're on their death bed, but, uh, you know, things come back, and uh, I, I, it's going to take a while. It's, it's not going to be something, and there's going to be a lot of dislocation, and there may be an election cycle or two that the Republicans don't do quite as well, but over time, people get assimilated into the process. They understand what's going on. They learn about the, our political system, and then the party comes out stronger in the end. I don't exactly know where this is going to end, but I'm a little bit more optimistic about the long-term uh, future uh, because uh, we've got new people in the process, and uh, they're going to stick around and, and learn and, and, and assimilate into the party. And I, I think that's healthy over the long term. On the short term, it's unhealthy, it's, it, it's difficult, it's, it's, it's messy, but in the long term, things seem to work out. One thing that's come out of these Republican uh, meetings over the last couple of weeks, um, or, or definitely over this last le- weekend, is that efforts to punish Governor Brian Kemp for the most part fell flat. And that's very good news for the governor as he gears up for re-election against uh, a likely challenge from Stacey Abrams. Um, you know, even if somebody like Jeff, Jun- Jeff Duncan ends up not standing by his side, um, it looks like maybe the, this voting law um, that we've talked so much about on this show might have help, helped him um, kind of reestablish his foothold enough to really power, power through. And as we've talked about, he really hasn't seen, um, you know, a MAGA challenger who's really picked up speed. Of course, there's Vernon Jones, but, um, you know, it doesn't seem like he's, uh, you know, he's consolidating support. So that's great news for for Brian Kemp and gives him a real opportunity to solidify his status 
with those activist types who are, you know, really flooding these these GOP meetings. So, Mayor Paul, uh, before we take a break, I just want to add one element to this conversation. Um, it, it's one thing to talk about uh, the internal struggles that the Republican Party may be may be having. I mean, there's this small number of Jeff Duncans who are pushing back against the Donald Trump dominance of the party. I get that. That's a f interesting conversation to watch unfold and for us to comment on on the show. But, but Mayor Ingram uh, talked about it from a larger point of view, and that what is, what is the message now that the Republican Party is sending to the country as a party of, uh, of primarily white privilege, which does not seem to uh, uh, look at the needs of black and brown people. It's, an, it's a problem that the party has had for some time. They tried to deal with uh, back when, when uh, uh, they lost the White House uh, in, in the, uh, to Barack Obama. And, and so the question becomes a larger one. Is the Republican Party going to be able to contribute positively to conversations about justice for all people in this country, given the position they're in right now? Well, I've tried to lead in that area, I think you know, uh, and I've done it my whole career back, uh, you know, and this is something we talked before we went on air, my, my connection to... Uh, to Jack Kemp, and Jack was a voice uh, in the Republican Party. He could he could give a speech at the SCLC and a union hall and a Republican convention, same speech, and get standing ovations on all of them. And I've tried to follow his example in in some of the, in some of the things we're doing here in Sandy Springs. Um, and and as I've tried to talk to my uh, my friends uh, within the party, you, you know, if you're betting simply on uh, angry white males. That's a declining uh, market share, and you've got to broaden the party. And the challenge is is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, and you've got to start talking about issues of, of education, health care, uh, uh, justice, and, and, and inclusion. Uh, those are things that matter to people, and un until the Republican Party starts addressing that, it's going to be a challenge to stay in control. But parties are adaptable. They, uh, they, you know, you lose a couple of elections, and then suddenly you uh, you start adapting to the zeitgeist. Uh, and I think that's what's going to happen. I think we may go through some very difficult elections over the next uh, cycle or two. But uh, you know, you you adapt to losing as well as you adapt to winning, and I think that's going to help uh, the party, whatever we go through, the travails and the trials, come out better, and we'll have to, we'll, we, but we've got to address the concerns of uh, people of color uh, and uh, other constituencies that we have not really been as good and as adept at uh, in, in, in our history. Um, one quick note before the break, I do have to say in terms of your comments about Jack Kemp, uh, I, I covered, as you know, uh, his presidential uh, campaign. And even after his presidential campaign was over, when Jack Kemp came to Atlanta, he, where did he like to stay? Pascal's Motor Line. Yeah, yeah. Down on MLK. Uh, and he and Mr. Pascal, in fact, had a very warm friendship. Well, and he Kemp was one of the true progressives in Georgia. In, in, yeah. huh? He understood that symbolism was as important in politics as policy. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you, you, had to, you had to do both. Let's take a break. We'll be back uh, with a big decision by the Supreme Court to take on abortion in their next session. This is Political Rewind.
Adam Van Brimmer, uh, the Georgia law passed a couple sessions ago, which virtually outlaws abortion in the state of Georgia, still making its way through lower federal courts. There's a hearing set in federal appeals court in September to try to lift a stay that was placed on that law. Um, meantime, the Supreme Court announced yesterday it's going to take up the Mississippi case in, uh, of a law which, in fact, would is not quite as restrictive as Georgia's. It would cap abortions at about 15 weeks of pregnancy, and the decision will probably be turned back. Will probably come down from the court sometime in the months before the 2022 election cycle. Adam. Yeah, and I think that was the whole point of all of these states passing these laws, right, was that it would eventually end up challenged in the courts, end up uh, eventually in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would would make some kind of ruling, and if they if they basically open the door to overturning Roe versus Wig, we'd see a, a, a parade of these. And if not, then the states would have to go back to the, to the drawing board. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. The idea of this coming out before the election certainly will um, – Certainly, will feed a lot of the, a lot of the uh, uh, partisan divisions and make abortion a, a, a big issue in the 2022 election. Uh, Tamar, if this is going to be um, one of the most watched cases that the court has taken up in a very, very long time. John Roberts is the has been the pivot point on the on abortion uh, recently, but we've now got a much more conservative court than we did the last time they took up a case. I think it's really difficult to overstate just how, you know, the impact that this decision could have. It directly challenges Roe versus Wade. Um, obviously, we're going to see the implications of um, not only the Trump presidency. I mean, he got three Supreme Court justices in, but also just the effectiveness of the Senate GOP when Mitch McConnell was majority leader. Um, went nuclear, changed the, the Senate rules in order to get these three justices through the door. Um, and obviously, there's a 6-3 Republican or sorry, conservative supermajority on this court. So, um, you know, Trump said he picked especially Amy Coney Barrett um, because of her views on, on abortion. So it all kind of comes down to this. And if it doesn't curtail um, or sorry, if it doesn't eliminate abortions, it could very well curtail the right to terminate a pregnancy um, and obviously huge implications, as Adam said, uh, will feed a lot of angry voters in the lead up to the midterm elections. And, you know, this also, if, if Democrats do end up losing on this issue, perhaps this is the one that causes the party to eventually nuke the filibuster entirely in order to pass an abortion law. So lots to come. Yeah, I, I find it interesting how abortion um, has become over decades, like the key election issue. It is fundamentally a, a woman's right to choose, a person's right to choose. Like, we've never had discussions about vasectomies. The people who are really kind of behind this whole notion about women should not have the right to choose what happens to their body or, you know, what, what they decide. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. And I think a lot of people, what I would love to see is the data around, like, how many of these people who are so anti-abortion either have had one or actually supported or know someone who's had one, right? I, I think it is a, it is couched in hypocrisy. It has become a, a very unfortunate national campaign issue. And the reality of it is we should not be legislating morality. We should not be trying to take away people's individual right to choose. And that's fundamentally what it's about. And, and so, you know, for me, when we start having conversations about this, I mean, yes, 
Republican or conservative um, presidents or people appoint conservative judges and then they go into these positions and you have people trying to legislate morality and really focusing on other people's homes, but not really. I mean, everybody has issues. Um, and I don't think I, I hope one day we reach a point where abortion is not a key election issue. That that to me is just really interesting when there's so many other issues. There's so many other needs that people have in this country that we spend time constantly talking about the, a woman's right to choose and that it is up on the chopping block every time there's an opportunity. That That is, you know, sexist, I think. Um, so uh, go ahead, Mayor Paul. Well, you know, assuming that the uh, the party that appointed a chief ju- or justice to the Supreme Court is going to rule the way they want you to, uh, it's kind of been a fallacious uh, argument. I mean, Eisenhower uh, appointed Earl Warren. Nixon appointed Warren Burger. John Roberts hasn't been a thriller for the conservative wing of the Republican Party either. Uh, so, you know, when you when when you get on the court, you tend to look at things a little bit differently. Uh, and just assuming that just because uh, there's a 6-3 conservative wing right now, a majority, that they will rule according to their uh, appointor uh, is kind of uh, – it hasn't worked out in the past. Now, I'm not sure if it will work out here or not. We'll, we'll have to see. Okay, I'm, I'm kind of running out of time, but one quick note about that. Uh, Tamar, the fact of the matter is that for a number, number of years, you were up in Washington, and, and, and Republicans really avoided uh, wanting to deal with abortion for, for a while. They thought it was too hot an issue, and suddenly it came rushing back in state legislatures, um, Republican-dominated legislatures, in the last couple of years to the point where, as uh, Mayor Ingram says, uh, it's a, a huge election issue again. Well, what happened was 88, when when the Pat Robertson wing of the party, Christian Coalition, came in the Republican Party, changed the whole dynamic between the parties on that issue. Tamar, quickly. I mean, and the makeup of the court has changed. RBG, um, very much a proponent of abortion rights, is gone now. And so even though it's, it's not, you know, the court could rule anyway, it's a much more conservative court. Tamar Hallerman, uh, Mayor Dina Holliday, Ingram, Mayor Rusty Paul, Adam Van Brimmer, thank you for a terrific conversation. Quick note, uh, tomorrow we're going to turn our attention to Anna Sale, the host of one of the most popular podcasts out there, Death, Sex, and Money. She's written a new book called Let's Talk About Hard Things, and she does, about death, about sex, about money, but also about how families struggle to communicate clearly and uh, amicably. And that's a particularly interesting subject in these times when we're so divided within our own families sometimes about politics. And a sale tomorrow on Political Rewind. That's it for us today. Um, I'll be back in the, uh, tomorrow. And in the meantime, take care. Uh, stay healthy. Uh, figure out what you're going to do about masks and tell your friends to go get vaccinated. That'll make it easier to make the mask decision. Bye-bye, everybody.